Yeah, this is this is really weird. What's weird is a flat white, and I will never get over it. And we talk about the story of where flat whites come from today on the show with Professor Jonathan Morris. Tackle that and more myths, starting though with a little more conversation about the early espresso machines. So, okay, but those machines, the ways that they're used is that you put them on the bar of a, uh, usually on a hotel bar in the newfangled cocktail bars that have come over from America. Hmm. And you want to obviously also produce what they call punches, you know, hot alcoholic drinks. Hmm. So you've got this thing and it makes steam and they've got some steam ones on it. So what they're using those steam ones for originally is to heat up alcohol for cocktails. <laughs> now, at some point... It's so random to me. Start, I don't know. It's, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> but, you know, at some point, these, these ones began to be used also for warming, and it is really just warming, warming milk for the coffee. Okay. So no foam, you know, you know, when you order so the no foam. cappuccino, no foam. The <laughs> cappuccino, no foam at that point. It seems likely that people started to learn how to do a bit of foaming or to do a bit of steaming. There would be, be steam warming. There's still, therefore, a step to go because we don't actually have any end espresso under that steam. So I think by about the 30s, we start seeing talk about the cappuccino being something you order in a bar as opposed to just an ordinary drink, which suggests by then that the, that the notion of steaming has started. And in fact, I mean, this is, a, this is a somewhat perverse jump, but if you think about early American, Ital- you know, so Italo-American places, so the um, famous cafe in New York, Cafe Reggio, isn't it, where there's this guy who sort of had, supposedly has the first espresso machine in America. And actually it seems like from every, all the descriptions we have of this guy that he really loved to blast I mean, absolutely blast his milk. It's a great description in uh, one of the um, newspaper articles from sort of, you know, about the, in the, in the 30s about this guy. So it says, you know, kind of the, the sound is like the bombers letting rip dive bombers coming down into the milk and all the rest of it. So it's, it's kind of just crazy. But so Ugh. it sounds like they were actually building up the idea of quality as foam from there. So I'm, I'm it's blaming you guys again. Oh, um, great. Anyway, yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> I love to uh, hand it around. Um, anyway, we move gradually towards OK a Cappuccino as being something that's prepared with steamed milk, possibly, and on top of a beverage that might have been called espresso, but it was nothing like espresso. So by the time we're going to get to what the cappuccino really is, as we understand it now, we're only going to do that when we have a machine capable of brewing high-pressure espresso. Mm-hmm. And that, as we know, doesn't happen until really the advent of Gadja and you know the Gadja machines. And it doesn't really get stabilized until the advent of the first sort of semi-automatics, which are now the sort of the traditional machines, so really until the 60s. So actually, the cappuccino, as a cappuccino, as we now know, the cappuccino probably first came to pass in the 1950s to 1960s. Well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) My my jaw is just like to the floor. I'm, wow. I, I don't feel so bad now when, I, I mean, I, sh- I shouldn't be so hard on people when they don't know what a cappuccino is if it's only been around for 50, a little yeah. over 50 years. I feel like a yeah. horrible human being now. Well, so. you know, I'm, we won't go there, Jesse. <laughs> good, good. At least not, not life. Yeah. Oh, dear. 
So you're telling me the cappuccino as we know it, it's only been around for 50 plus as we know it, it's only been around for 50 plus years. And well, in as we name it, uh, it's yeah, to do with the monks, but nothing to do with all those nice things about hair and all the rest of it. You know, this calms me down quite a bit uh, about the flat white, and we're not going to get into it, but... Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me feel a little better that it's just so confusing. I'm so, it makes right. it's like settles my heart a little bit. Okay. Can, I, can so, I say something about the flat white? If you dare. <laughs> well, I will dare because I, I, I had a go at this one. And this is, um, yeah, this is, this is really weird. But when I've tried to trace that back a little bit through Australian newspapers, what I get is this, that there are, it's definitely true, I can find stories for you where in the paper they talk about flat white. And there's two things that come out. First of all is that the older references to flat white, so if you just do like a text search for a newspaper, I kept finding it referring to a paint color. And so flat is like matte, you know? In other words, it's, you know, it's not a shiny white, it's a matte white. Okay. You with me? Yes. Yeah. Okay, and then I found some stories, and I think they were really from possibly the 1980s, which is much later than I expected to find. And they were like this, that apparently for some reason they were unable to foam or to, to froth really because they were, their foaming would be a bit, a bit unlikely at that point, to froth in the normal way the milk for cappuccino. And there seemed to be some kind of crisis hitting Australia. This is absolutely <laughs> true, right? Um about, you know, well, the, the milk, you know, our milk doesn't seem to work. And then there are whole sort of explanations <laughs> about this. And the explanations yes. are that it's to do with, you know, the cow fodder or the change mm. from, you know, when they go in and out and all the rest of it. And that someone had stuck up a, a sign on the door saying, you know, we can't do cappuccinos, only flat whites. <laughs> no, I know. Sorry, you can find this in the paper. It's really no true. Way. And um, so... I don't know if that is the the only origin of flat white, but that is, seems a pretty good one. And actually, I rather prefer that story to any of the others sure. about, you know, I just give me a flat white, don't give me any fame on it or whatever. I just think this flat white is that, that's great. Oh, that's hilarious. But there we go. That's the flat white. And that is, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with micro foaming, et cetera. So, yeah. So I, I'm free to hand. If a customer asks me, you know, hey, I'll have a flat white, I can, I could hand them really anything because (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to name drop, but there's a particular coffee company I feel uh, has redefined many, many a drink. Uh, Okay. And uh, you may know the company I'm talking about. They like to. I'm I'm, I'm guessing that they're quite big. They're quite big. You know, I don't want to name drop. Um, no, no, no. But I feel the confusion of flat white has only worsened in the last ten years. Uh huh. Oh, yeah, man. I would I would agree with you that. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you agree with me, I feel safe. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you that. Uh, I, there is a seriously interesting thing about flat white, which is actually flat white is actually that something that's done that reverse trip because it, it's tripped from Australasia 
into Europe and, you know, frankly, into Britain and then back over to you guys. Interesting. So it's, it's, you know, it's unusual in having gone that way rather than the way that the coffee company that you might be referring to might be assumed to have done. <laughs> oh, all right. Let's, let's, I, we could cappuccino forever. Let's be real. We, we could, absolutely. And it's I, I it's a verb now. I have one, but yeah. Oh, Go oh on. yeah. yeah. Right. Our last uh, myth of sorts. Um, maybe, yeah. I don't know if it's a myth. You would. So let's talk about this Jersey fellow. Uh, and, oh, wow. And, and what I understand to be, I, this is what, what I understand from what I read, is we're claiming the original cafe here. Is that correct? That's the claim. Uh, well, he's, he's got so many claims, this guy. <laughs> uh, and he is so difficult shot. to nail. He's a hot shot. And he is so difficult to nail down. I would love to say let's start with what we know, but actually let's start with what we don't know, but, but I've been many times told. Jerzy Kulczycki. Right. First of all, we don't really know entirely where he's from. Lots of places claim him. I had a huge row with, um, and actually it wasn't a row because I had no part in it other than to have mysteriously sort of just happened to ask about this. But, you know, the Ukrainians claim him very, very proudly. I believe the Poles claim him. The Austrians, to some extent, claim him. I think what? I'm related to him, actually. Really? Oh, that's great. I just want so to throw Would you that like to there. claim him? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's... that's great. Okay, that's, that's, that's good. This could help a lot. Uh, so, so the argument about this guy, I think what we probably can say is he... Actually, I don't even know if we can truthfully say he existed. I think we can say that somebody of that name existed and that they served in the Habsburg army in some capacity during the siege of Vienna in the 1680s, 1688. Story goes, the guy served as a spy and he was chosen to be a spy and he dressed us as a Turk and he went behind the Turkish lines and he understood the Turks. This was his qualifications hmm. for being a spy. Oh, okay. He's supposed to come back with all this sort of information that enabled the Austrians to survive the siege. He was supposedly, when he was asked what he wanted for his reward, he just wanted the sacks of coffee that had been left behind by the Turks and nobody knew what the hell they were and so they gave him him. Hmm. And then he started and became the first person to sell coffee in Vienna and started the whole Austrian coffee tradition and sold coffee at the so-called blue bottle or the house under the blue bottle. Oh, and copyright uh, infringement. That's got to be yeah, copyright sorry. infringement there. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so this is the man. And so he gets this really big write-up. And, you know, we say, I mean, I was talking about the addition of milk and cream and so forth, and that's all supposedly down to him. But he also when he serves, he dresses up like many of these other people did at the time. He dresses up as a traditional Turkish uh, dress or traditional Balkan dress. Our problems start with the fact that he pretty definitely wasn't the first person to sell coffee in Vienna. 
We know that coffee had been in Vienna for the best part of 20 years. It probably got there in the 1660s. We think it came in with people who were usually referred to as Ar Armenians. Uh, Armenian usually in this context just again means Christians living or who've come from the kind of the Ottoman territories, so usually the Balkans. The first guy to have a license to sell coffee is a guy called Johannes Diodato. Now, we can only trace that license back to the early 1680s, but the implication of the license is that he's been doing it for some time. Practical um, question about that. Yeah. So, on. you know, in Texas, there have been families or people who have brewed illegally whiskey mm -hmm. for many years, right? And then there are those who are certified. Um, so uh, how does the science work there? Like, if he was selling it illegally... Because he was a spy, after all. I feel like he could sneak around and sell some coffee. Well, that's, I guess, is possible. But I think, actually, the truth of this one is that, in reality, it's people like Diodatu who are sneaking around selling coffee. Oh. <laughs> okay. In the sense that what he eventually gets licensed to do is run a coffee house. But we know that running a coffee house, so that's for preparing and selling coffee, but it seems likely that there is already a trade in, as it were, domestic coffee, not least because you'd have quite a few, you know, I mean, this is a time of, like all times, I suppose, of migration and so forth. You have people who are migrating, who come with a certain set of uh, cultural and physical goods, one of which might be making coffee. If you think within those immigrant populations, we often see, you know, today when we see immigrant uh, shops, they often have things in them that we don't recognize. So if I go walking in London and I walk in certain areas, I like to go around. Uh, I'm, going, I'm going to be diversing again here, um, Jesse, but I like to walk around Finsbury Park just near the stadium of the wonderful Arsenal Football Club, where you see a great number of stores which import vegetables that I have never seen, hmm. you know, but obviously have a market for, uh, we have quite a lot of um ethnic communities there that come in uh, to London and, go and gravitate into those areas. So in the same way, I think if we think about somewhere like Vienna, which is pretty close, you know, to that border with the Ottoman lands, the Ottoman empires, we would have an under trade, for want of a better word. You know, we would have people immigrating in or, or in one way or another ending up across the border. And I think it's likely that we would have seen coffee come in that way. I see. Okay. Uh, but what we didn't see was the setting up of coffee shops, if you like, for want of a better word, coffee houses. So Diodato is actually then the first guy who gets a regulated license for a coffee shop for preparing and selling coffee. So Diodato, not Kulshitsky. So not the first cafe. Wow. Now, that's quite intriguing in itself. The next difficulty is working out whether or not the blue bottle ever really existed in that form at that time. Hmm. Now, there is a fantastic picture of the blue bottle with Kulczynski in his dress serving coffee, which looks brilliant. And the first time I saw it happily on the internet, as usual, I thought, wow, we've solved everything here and that I'm going to grab that from my book. And it is indeed in my book. Uh, however, um, that picture was painted in the 19th century. And what seems right, right. to have happened is that the Kulshitsky story was massively bigged up at the turn of the 19th and 20th century by 
the Viennese Guild of Coffee Makers. And Wait, say that one more time just so I can... Yeah, I will say that. The Viennese Guild of Coffee Makers. Wow, this sounds like it's out of our, our day and age. It does, although it's actually relatively recent. Yeah, I mean, okay, relatively recent in my terms as a historian, you know. Um, sort of the, so we're talking, you know, the 1880s type period. Okay. So back to the point about marketing and creating a good image and so forth. Now, I, I don't know the, the full politics of this, but there's a lot of uprest around guild organizations in that time. Who is allowed to sell what? You know, uh, the regulations. Are they being eased? Are people coming in? And I'm, kind of getting the feeling that what was happening here was that that guild was bigging up Kulshitsky to big up itself. Do you see what I mean? And to make itself more important and to make people associate that, you know, here is our traditional heritage and this mm. is why we should be respected and protected and so forth. I see. Okay. So, again, I'm now doing some speculation there, though I have some some contextual reasons for doing that. But this is the incredible stuff about Kulshitsky because the more you look at the guy, the more he isn't there. Do you see what I mean? I mean it's very difficult to actually <laughs> nail this guy down at any time to any place, yet he has a statue, yeah. he has a painting and all of that stuff appeared in the late 19th century. So this is like category coffee legend. It's got to be legend status. Yeah, it's, well I think this is, this is a classic thing about myth. Yeah, we've made, you know, there's some truth probably to Kulshitsky, but, you know, um, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he existed. But he's been massively bigged up to create a myth that serves various purposes for those, you know, for different elements of, of, of the Austrian coffee world. So, yeah, he is a classic myth. Well, you know, I, I feel we've just skimmed the top of, uh, I suppose, the proverbial cappuccino here. How do you yeah, like that? Indeed. How do you like that? Yeah, that was very good. I, I, <laughs> I was impressed by it. Yeah. You know, I I always love. You know, we've had you on the show before. I love going through these topics with you. I, the whole time, I'm just like absorbing like a sponge all of this information that I feel like isn't readily accessible to me. I mean, the internet, but we we all know the internet has its large the, holes. The internet has large holes and is often the cause, as we said at the top of the show, of, of misunderstandings right. and myths in itself. Yeah, But, you know, you have this book that's coming out. I want to talk a I little do. bit about that um, in the context of eras, you know, because we've yeah. covered a few different uh, eras, I suppose, in this conversation. Um, Certainly have. So, let me ask you first, what era are we in now? Um, and well, let, let's tie that into uh, what all you talk about in your book. So in the book, I organize the history of coffee into five eras, if you like. And each of those eras, I think you see a significant shift in what I would call this, the kind of almost like the world system of coffee. But that's a system that connects consumption, production, and the industry and trade and all of that. So each time we see a major shift and it can come out anywhere along that, that I, I guess we, we will all conceptualize it as a chain, but we have to conceptualize that also, I think, in terms of the power within it. So if we go back to that first period I was talking about, it's the period when coffee is the wine of Islam, if you like, that first era. But think about that as a construction. The coffee is being grown, growing wild in Ethiopia, where it's also harvested wild 
It's being cultivated in Yemen. It's being consumed within the boundaries, really, of the Muslim world. It's traded within the Muslim world initially. So the era one is a very self-contained era, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. That changes with the spread of coffee into Europe. And in very simple terms, that early modern era is one that I would call the era of coffee as a colonial good. So first we have the Europeans adapting coffee, and we've talked about the myths that come out of that. But then we have that next bit of, well, actually appropriating coffee, taking it out to colonies, etc., and starting to grow it. So uh, the Dutch planting in Java, the French planting in, uh, well, in what is literally Bourbon at that period, and then over in uh, the Caribbean, notably um, Santo Domingue, which um, today Haiti. Uh, and so a second sort of shift, if you like, where we have coffee as a colonial good. Do you see what I mean? So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and going back into Europe as the nexus of that. Third era, therefore, is the era of coffee as an industrial branded product. And that's the period, and these eras are kind of overlap a little bit, but that is the period in which the US becomes the big coffee market and Brazil and to some extent the rest of Latin America become the big coffee supplier. So you have a whole new coffee system. And that's the era in which really, I guess, coffee coffee becomes an industrial product. It becomes something you brand, you market, you have big coffee roasters. We don't really have coffee roasting firms prior to that. We don't have the idea of a coffee industry. Now we get those people like uh, Arbuckles and, and so forth who are really coffee is their, their big thing. Uh, and we get all the equipment to go with that. We also see that big shift in where things are being grown. And that starts with a push factor, the push factor being attack of coffee rust, of uh, coffee leaf rust in Asia. It just destroys Asian production totally. So mm. production basically all becomes concentrated in Latin America, the overwhelming side of it, because it's destroyed elsewhere in any case. Uh, And of course, then Latin America is able to up and up production because, again, it can produce and ship into the US. And we find this weird thing for the first time of places like Brazil. Brazil, we know, originally uh, using slave labor and then converting to actually importing basically European peasants Hmm. to carry on working on on these, these farms. So... Um, it's quite, a, again, quite an interesting reversal of fortune. We then shift into what I would call the fourth era, the, the era of coffee as a global commodity. You know, we're seeing transformations in Europe already, but it is the era in which really the advent of Robusta changes the world because Robusta brings back on first Africa. You need to remember, you know, like by the 1970s, Africa is again a really big producer of coffee because of Robusta. Hmm. It brings basically the growth of instant coffee. It brings the democratization of coffee that maybe America has already seen. It brings that really into Europe and it starts the sort of the growth of a whole new era, therefore, of coffee is the ultimate democratized uh, soluble coffees. Yeah, so those soluble coffees that um, very cheap, uh, mass produced. 
And it's also the era, of course, as we know, of the big battles over control of supply and price, the ICO, the ICA, and so forth. And, you know, you can say elements of that still exist, but we have probably entered, I think it's fair to say, now an interesting era of this sort of, if you like, coffee as a specialty beverage, Hmm. where in that era, or in our era, we're seeing the premiumization of coffee, particularly in the developed economies to start with. We're seeing based around yeah, the use of those espresso-based beverages, creating a premium around coffee, and that then moving into the stuff that, that we love, the specialty beverage of today, the sort of the single origins and so forth. The move to try and do things around the ethics of coffee and the sources of coffee. We're in an interesting phase, aren't we? Because you and I are probably very conscious of what the coffee price is today. It's not good. No. And um, that <sighs> is much more about the global commodity than it is about the specialty, but it's sure. just that our specialty era hasn't really as yet changed the fundamentals. So those are our five eras, but to me there is a possibility we might move beyond that. But if we do, it will be because the ways in which specialty has made coffee more desirable, has started to empower, to, as we know, take off in the developing economies, in Asia in particular, and also for the first time really in producing countries. So we have a lot of, and Brazil is the second biggest consumer country in the world now. So it's the biggest producer, but it's also the second biggest consumer. And that's the big shift. Yeah, that's that's now, fascinating. It, it is fascinating. And I think there's something there that might ultimately be the base for a, for another shift. Because our problem throughout coffee history, certainly from the period of the coffee or of the industrial era on, is periodically when we have big harvests and we already have stocks, then we get this situation where the price goes through the floor. Like it just has and a few days like ago. Like it just has, exactly yeah. like a few days ago, yeah? because basically there's too much supply and not enough demand. And what we what you know what was used to be done there was the attempt by producing countries to as it were work through a a supply control agreement like the ICA. We know that that's no longer viable. What is viable and sustainable would surely be only to up demand and the only way you can really up demand and volume is by growing markets in new markets so if we succeed in doing that maybe we'll get into a sixth era of coffee that would be a bit more sustainable that's my take on the world systems of coffee and how long did i do about five minutes there i think there's uh, about a million podcast episodes in the last five minutes is, of you talking there are, there, there are absolutely a lot of podcasts and i would be delighted to do them with jesse well i would be delighted i, I mean again this is this is better than netflix i I'm just putting that out there, right? (laughs) Okay, I'm going to take that one and that's going to be on the cover of the book. (laughs) Yeah, you have a millennial saying that. So there you go. That's a super win. Super win for coffee history. So tell us a little bit about your book, you know, the the basics. Okay, fine. So (laughs) the book is called Coffee, A Global History. Publisher's name are Reaction Press. You will find it right now on Amazon. So if you go into Amazon and put my name, Jonathan Morris, and Coffee Global History, you'll find a side for the book. I think that the price in the U.S. is $11.99. Thanks for joining us on the show again, uh, Professor. And uh, we look forward to having you back on for, sounds like a series on Italian coffee history. 
Hey, I would be absolutely delighted to do that. It's always a pleasure talking with you, Jesse. Well, thanks, Professor Morris, for joining us on the show. And thank you for the 20% off discount on your new book, Coffee at Global History. We have a US and a UK discount on the website at thecoffeepodcast.org. So if you want to get your hands on the book, um, jump onto the website. The link will be in the podcast description for you. Well, we have more Coffee Myth episodes on the way. So stay tuned for those. I want to take a quick second to say thank you for listening to the Coffee Podcast in 2018. We are excited for the new year, 2019, and there's a lot of great stuff and we have so many ideas for this year. So be sure to check us out on our normal platform, social media and what have you. And as always, we invite your feedback. Let us know what you want to hear in 2019. As always, and until next time, happy brewing.